welcome back to Relative Digressions, Season 2. I'm Felicia, or Flick to you, and my co-host and companion on this journey is... Hi, uh, I'm Brenna. And for those of you who are only just joining us, we are on a voyage of discovery and rediscovery through classic Doctor Who. I have seen every episode before. I may have become stuck in my ways. I need a fresh pair of eyes. Renna is new to classic Doctor Who, having come from the pastures of modern 2005 onwards Doctor Who, and may offer a perspective that I don't have. Although it's very interesting, actually, uh, just before we actually get into the episode we're talking about, uh, I was in discussion on Twitter this week about the fact that actually uh, for at least a few children, Jack Harkness is the guy who was on Doctor Who when their parents were kids. That's terrifying. Yeah. So uh, without further ado and more contemplation of our own mortality, let's discuss this week's episode, The Leisure Hive, which is the first serial of the final season of Tom Baker's Tenure of the Doctor. Right, so I picked this mainly for one reason, which is that Renna doesn't think that she likes Tom Baker, and I tried to calculate... I have mixed opinions on Dr. Tom Baker, but, you know... I tried to calculate a Tom Baker story that I thought would appeal to Renna based on her responses to other stories, but there's also, I think, a lot that's interesting about The Leisure Hive because of where it sits in Doctor Who, the start of season 18, this sort of incoming new production team, outgoing production team, a big sea change. Specifically John Nathan Turner, who will be involved in the show until its cancellation. If I was going to summarise it, I would say the Doctor and Romana go to Space Butlins, who are actually doing secret science to create a clone army, hijinks ensue. Also, there are like space bug-eyed lizard mafia. Interesting that you say Space Butlins. That was literally how it was conceived of, but in execution, JNT felt that they hadn't quite realised it that way. The reason I say this was like Butlins is because the thing I remember about Butlins is that kind of, it's a bit crap, but it's also a bit flashy. And they have kind of like things that seem very flash on the surface, but actually when you dig in, there's really not so much to them. And that's very much like how the Argolins use tachyonics. Uh, So that did remind me of Butlins in that sense. Right, but that is a cover for the fact that actually the Tachyonics is much more powerful and developed than the Argolins have let on. And if there's a theme to this story, it is a theme of unmaskings that sort of alternate between Flash and Pizzazz covering up for brokenness and weakness and brokenness and weakness that's secretly covering up for Flash and Pizzazz. Yeah, there's a famous climax to the prisoner where he's trying to find out who number one is and he pulls off a mask and then he pulls off another mask and it's been parodied in The Simpsons and other places just sort of endlessly pulling off masks and never getting to the bottom. And that's kind of how the leisure hive unfolds, including literally one scene where somebody pulls off a mask and then having unmasked an alien, the alien then turns out to not be the alien you expect them to be. Uh, oh, one bit of visuals, actually, that we should mention at some point. Tom Baker is, uh, or the fourth Doctor, is aged up for a good chunk of the serial, basically due to a tachyonics accident. The effects on that are quite good. Right, there is a lot of visual stuff going on here. There's a, several uses of ageing effects. Tom Baker spends literally half the story geriatric, and that works quite well. They kind of sell the peril of it quite well. But also the Argolins have a thing where as part of the fallout from the 20-minute war, when they 
they stay young and youthful and sort of hale and hearty until suddenly their metabolism catches up with them and they rapidly age, which is shown by um, their, their face wrinkles, these crystals in their head drop away. And a couple of them go through this, one of whom dies and one of whom doesn't. And and it's sold quite well, this sort of sense of, oh, they're suddenly like careening towards their death throughout the story. Yeah, the, the, some of the themes here about death and ageing and survival, the Argolin race is sterile, so they want to survive another way. The design of the Argolins works really well, I think. Yeah, I really like it. I actually remembered the Argolins remind me of the the Forest of Cheem. Yes, the shape of their heads is is quite... Yes, yeah, they have a very similar sort of like pointy-headed alien thing. But they are supposed to also be plant-based, which is why they're green. Right, yeah, they're kind of botanical and they have little... I quite like the look of the Famazi, but they do look weird because they were made by the costume department and not the SFX department. So they're made of like cloth. Oh, you see, I didn't. I, I, I really like. They, they have a sort of like. I like the fact that they're not made out of like latex rubber like every other alien. It makes them right, unique. It, it, yeah, it gives them a certain look. No, I, I quite like them. Although I have to say the the, the unmasking the alien bit was quite funny because they are like the the actual alien they're like twice as large you're like I, I, how are they getting in those those masks oh well so they actually that's a special it doesn't quite play on screen and this is this is a thing I wanted to come to like there is a lot of stuff in this where it's all reaching for really good interesting visuals. Half of it gets there and half of it falls flat, but it's all reaching for something good. Yeah, very much so. Um... And so the idea with the Famazi, when they're unmasked, they're masquerading as human mediators, but they're actually Famazi aliens. And when they're unmasked, the idea is that they explode, that they're sort of compressed into the human suits and they explode out of them when unmasked. So they had deflated weather balloons painted green inside the human suits that they then rapidly inflated as the Famazi burst out. But it doesn't quite play uh-huh. right on screen. Oh, I hadn't quite got that. That's that's really interesting. And and like, uh, actually, now you said it, I can see it. it, it, it it's interesting because, of course... In some sense, it's what the Slovene do. Right, so I was I was literally about to say, where else have you seen compressed bug-eyed aliens in human suits who are actually an organised crime syndicate who, like, like the Slovene and the Famazi are basically just a down-the-line copy. Yeah, same thing. Well, specifically, actually, they are uh, not just the, the, the baddies in this, are the West Lodge, who are like basically the Famasi uh, Mafia. It looks good, apart from when it fails, but at least when it fails, it fails trying to do really interesting things. There, there is a parallel in the, the production side of it, which is that, you know, they wanted to create this sense of the Leisure Hive being sort of brightly lit, bright illumination, and vivid colours, um, but simultaneously claustrophobic because there is no outside because it's this ra- radioactive wasteland and you can't leave the hive. And this kind of juxtaposition of the bright but the claustrophobic was something that they really went for. But what that means is it ends up looking like every other future set Doctor Who story, which were bright but claustrophobic not by design, but by lack of thought. And it's that kind of like, we thought about it a lot, and then in the execution produced something that can be mistaken for something very 
run-of-the-mill not thought about. Yes, they arguably have a lot of effort trying to... They do, they, they do actually get some great value out of the brightness by then, towards the end of the story, killing the lights and doing a lot in the shadows. But Yes. But in both writing and in production, they put a lot of thought into something that ends up, if you're not paying attention, looking like something very middle of the line and traditional old hat. That that is probably fair. There's some very long lingering shots of shuttles leaving it. Right, for for a story which is really edited down, they use the same slow model shot in black and white of a docking spaceship five times? (laughs) Oh, it's not good. I, I, I don't know what's going on with that. Right, um, so I, I actually really enjoyed this. I succeeded in finding a Tom story you'd like. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I am excited, I think, for some more Tom, although apparently there's nothing more like this, but I, in general, quite enjoyed the story. I, I, I enjoyed all the plotting and the going back and forth. So I think you actually enjoyed it maybe more than me. I, I loved this story when I first saw it, and I think I might have seen it twice, but maybe only once. Anyway, revisiting it, I still liked it a lot, but and this is this is rare for a classic Doctor Who story, but above and above all what I felt was slow down a bit, mate. Slow down, you're going too fast. Oh yeah, no, no you see I I liked the paciness of it. I I like pace and I like tight editing and it is rare in classic Doctor Who. But there is a really clever story here with really hard science fiction and because of the speed it goes a lot of the plot beats get lost and you don't appreciate quite how clever it is and the hard sci-fi sounds like technobabble because they don't stop to explain any of it all the tachyonic stuff is actually based on science that was current at the time well, I mean, to some degree, right? I mean, tachyons maybe, but no one was saying tachyons could reverse your aging. Uh, well, tachyons are particles that travel backwards in time, and there's a part where uh, um, when they're recalibrating it, they talk about recalculating the eigenfunctions, um, and they talk about uh, FIFO stack. And this isn't... this. To be clear... This is the influence of Christopher H. Bidmead coming into Doctor Who with a mandate to make it less fantastical and more scientific. And he put these things into the script. They weren't originally there based on actual science articles that he'd read. He knew what those words meant. And part of me wishes that it went slower so that we could tell that it wasn't just hand-wavy technobabble, because it seems like it is. Right. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because, of course, actually, I mean, it gets 100 minutes. It actually gets less than that. Um, all of the episodes run under length. So, But, but I mean, I think that, that rounds off my point really nicely, and it probably gets about as long as a two-parter in the modern series would get. And I wonder if a two-parter actually would give you more room to breathe because you wouldn't have to... I mean, there was some literal recapping where they play the cliffhanger scene kind of again. There, there's some really long recapping, actually. 
Right, and we're saying there's a lot of material here, and there is a lot of material, but as you say, because they go through it at kind of a pace, the chopping up, I think, doesn't help it. I think that it's such a clever story. It's not just a romp, but the speed it goes through, it ends up looking like a romp. I actually think the fact that you can feel like it's a romp is one of its positives. Uh, in that, I think you could quite happily just watch this and be like, ha ha. The Doctor, some boy got aliens, some the Doctor, something. and and that's fine. I think that's a perfectly fine way to enjoy Doctor Two. The fact that the, the plot and all its moving parts actually make a good amount of sense is is, a, is an added bonus. Contextually, this is where we differ. Of course, I am aware that this story comes after a season of Graham Williams and Douglas Adams Doctor Who, which was just wall to wall silly romps we didn't need right. another silly romp at this point and this isn't a silly romp and it's a shame that that's not readily apparent right i see yeah i think what i would say i want to emphasize i absolutely enjoyed it this is unquestionably a better episode of doctor who than genesis the daleks right i mean that's wrong uh well that's how i feel and you can't take my feelings away from me i don't want to recap the genesis controversy but i just i enjoyed watching this uh i think but but for comparison our comparison to compare to genesis and the happiness patrol which is of course the other another one i actually really enjoyed from our from season one so happiness patrol was the main touch point that made me think to watch this one yeah right exactly but the thing is the happiness patrol and i will admit genesis of the daleks although i won't recap our discussion on that have a lot more ideas going on that are quite deep or there's some interesting themes what I will say about this is that while the plot is quite well plotted and it has some interesting bits to it and it, it's not just a kind of a romp, it actually hangs together and there's some real... The, the characters have like motivations that are going in different directions and that's very interesting. I think there's nothing that deep. There's no dilemma. There's no moral dilemma. There's no deep thematic things here. There, well... I think there is a deep theme to do with the the sort of the masquerade theme, I think, runs quite deep. I think there are motifs, but that's different from themes. Sure. Uh, so what what I mean is that it's, it, it, it plays on that stuff, but, 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 why, but what is that say, what is it saying with the masquerading? Well, I think that all the masquerading is, despite the fact that it's sort of about, you know, private industries and mobs and leaning on people that way it's really a cold war story because all of this masquerading is coming out of the 20 minute war right and the the history between the argolins and the fomazi uh, okay so i think that's, that's that is a solid point actually and i hadn't considered it in that light so this is in 1980 yeah uh, let's remember so so uh, i think that's a really great point let's let's talk about that a little bit so just to recap the Famasi and the Argolins both used to share this planet, I think, or maybe this was just the Argolin planet. There was a war. It, it was nuclear, or if not nuclear, something like that. Uh, actually, interestingly, the planet was rendered so that the Famasi can successfully live here uh, because they're more resistant to radiation. But it's and well, actually nobody lives here, and it's mainly just a dead world with the Argolins clinging on, which is really interesting if you consider it, because the Famasi, we, we never really learn actually what has provoked the Famasi to like seems like they won the war but they don't control the planet and actually the Fomazi government in the end as opposed to sort of the revanchist um they almost feel like Fomazi nationalists as well as being mafia uh within it who would like to take the take over the planet that is not what the legitimate government of the Fomazi wants so there's some what's happening happened there with the politics so so actually like this is what i mean about it goes so fast that you miss things 
the Fumazi government want to legitimately take Argolin over. The West Lodge, who are the Mafia, want to illegally take it over, but both factions do want to take Argolis over. Oh, yes, of course, because uh, I forget that we actually see the business people. Uh, we think that we actually see the West Lodge kill the legitimate government for Marzi, and then at the end it transpires that they uh, escaped. Because actually we see the humans, who really are the humans, on a video, and then they then they just apparently turn up. And I do remember thinking, how did they get from Earth to here so fast? And actually the answer is, uh, in fact, they didn't. But uh, I'm not sure how deeply I meant to think about that. Um, okay, sure. But, but crucially, the, if the Argolans refuse their offer, they're not going to make war. So it's quite interesting, right? So you have this... I didn't think there's straightforward analogies to either side of the Cold War, but I think I actually do buy that there is that sort of theme in it. There's also the threat within the Argolins themselves posed by Pangol, and that that idea of the enemy might be among you. Pangol, I should clarify for listeners, Pangol is the first and so far only Argolin who has been produced by the recreation machine, and he intends to make an army using the recreation machine and go to war. So I hadn't really realised it, but of course you have the Argolans and the Famasi, but then within each of them you have what are essentially war factions who would like there to be a conflict um, or... Or, or, or are willing to use more yeah. underhanded means. And actually, you can view Pangol and the West Lodge as mirrors of one another. Pangol and the West Lodge, in a sense, are on the same side, which is the side of wanting their two races to be at war with each other. Uh, indeed, I think you can read uh, a little of the fascist into Pangol, especially at the oh, end. Oh, absolutely. He, he, he puts on the helmet of the warrior who had ended up losing the war effectively uh, they use the helmet in like a uh, trial in a trial scene it basically it's like the the symbol of the Argolin people and their great folly and he puts on the helmet which is very convenient because then he clones himself and then they can just have a bunch of people wearing the same costume but it's set up in quite a like yeah it's, so there it's is done this very well. stick of he puts on the helmet and then it, a it means that they can have an army of clones and they don't have to all look like the same actor and B it sets up a twist where actually they're all the Doctor and not Pangol right uh, which is very well done but it's done in such a way that even though I've seen it before I forgot that and was surprised by the twist it, it, it's really interesting and as I say like there's something about the image of like these uniform hordes marching after the machine uh, the, the Argolins at war in comparison to the old Argolins who are still there and are kind of like flapping around and are now basically being ordered around by Pangol who claims Mina the previous leader has died now I'm in charge actually it turns out she's not dead and actually they restore her to life so it feels like you've essentially witnessed a failed a coup which is foiled by the Doctor and that very much feels resonant with politics of the real world and Pangol's really interesting because you, you see him from the start, basically, because his his father is the one who is in charge at the start, and he dies, and then Mino, his mother, uh, I think, takes over. And it seems at the start like he's sort of just the, the sort of the main but quite nice, I suppose, Argolian representative. And so the fact he turns out to be the baddie is, I, I think, it's a legitimate little twist. I quite liked it. It's interesting because at the end of episode three... In sort of rapid sex succession, Famazi appear, and it's like, oh, Famazi, and then the Famazi turn out to be good guy Famazi, and they and they unmask the 
bad guy from Marzi masquerading as humans, and they explain that those are bad guy from Marzi, but we're the good guy from Marzi, and it's sort of like, oh, hang on, have they? Have they not now finished the plot an episode early? And then Pangol sort of steps up and goes, Aha! Now I shall be the villain. Right, exactly. Mina, incidentally, is in on it. Mina is um, one of the ones responsible for Pangol being created. Mina knows what the recreation machine is capable of and is in on the plan to rebuild the race using it. But she doesn't want to start a war with it. And that's that's the difference. Yes, so it's not clear to me at the end, actually, if they have the Argolins have a way out. The Argolins are, as it stands, a doomed species because they age um, and they're sterile. They have no way of making more Argolins. So the, the, the race has a, a finite lifespan, which is the irony, actually, of the Famazi wanting to buy the planet. Is if they wait, no one will live there. Um, but they, they still persist trying to do it legitimately, which is interesting. I mean, you would you sort of hope that Mina's project, the peaceful refounding of the uh, Argolan race, will be able to happen, but it's not really clear. So you've got Pangol betraying Mina, but Mina herself is keeping secrets from the wider Argolis, uh, and they're all keeping secrets from the Fomazi, and the Fomazi, there are two factions within it. Nobody can trust anyone. Oh, and the, the scientists who are actually human are keeping secret the fact that their research into tachyonics is actually faked. So every, everyone is lying to everyone else and everyone has an agenda. The interesting thing is that the Doctor and Romana are foils to this by not having a stake, really having only turned up for a holiday. The Doctor and Romana, first of all, they don't have a stake. But secondly, they understand everything from the offset. They know how to make the tachyonics work, but they also instantly recognise that people are lying. In a sense, there shouldn't be any drama in this story because the Doctor and Romana just know so much from the offset. I don't think they've figured it all out. And they kind of, the only thing is that they know stuff. And it's really interesting, actually, because having not seen the Doctor with another Time Lord before in, in this kind of sense it's because they're basically just sort of casually chatting about like this primitive technology which is of course far in advance of our modern technology but compared to time lord science it, it is of course primitive um and that's quite an interesting dynamic because they are just here as sort of catalysts for change i want to dig a little bit into the doctor in this episode um hmm. specifically uh, and romana um not in the context of the episode's plot but you're just going to what, what i found so i i think the meddling Thick mode that I get the impression Tom sort of defaults to and in does quite well. Uh, I think it works very well here. Uh, I liked him. I think he, I think one of my issues with Tom is that he's a big actor. Uh, sorry, when I say one of my issues with Tom is that he's a very scenery chewing actor. There's a time and a place for that, but it's not really my preferred style. Um, and he and he does it a lot. Uh, and he's a good actor, but you know, perhaps that 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 particular style isn't for me. But actually, in this episode, partly because of the aging thing, partly because of the way the episode's constructed, the Doctor is a catalyst, but often not taking an active role in the plot. A bunch of other stuff. He's not front and center. He's just a continual presence. And actually, that makes him for me very. You know, the the things I find a bit loud about Tom are a bit muted, and he actually gets more room to do a bit more subtlety. And I. 
I also liked, is it Lala Ward who plays Romana? And she's been good, actually, whenever I've seen clips and stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing more Romana. And there's an interesting dynamic here. Very famous costume for Lala Ward, this story. It's just a little, with a little hat. Well, it's, it's a, a like, old Victorian schoolgirl's outfit. Right, I see. Well, I mean, let's not dig too much into that. Well, that um... was her. She, she suggested it because she thought it would make kids um, excited to wear their school uniforms. Oh, that is adorable. Uh, and she had not at all any sense that it might be, it might also go another way. Right, yes. She's got a good face for like a time loss, like, because she's quite pretty, but she's got a, but like in a yeah interesting like face way. It, it, you could see her playing the doctor very easily, I yes. think. Um, she has a, a similar quality to her face because the doctor is often handsome, but using gender code But when the doctor is played by a male actor, I, Often they're handsome, but even David Tennant is not entirely conventionally attractive. Mm. There's just some, but there is something that draw, is interesting about his face. It's much more of a character actor role than a you know you. you the, it would be almost absurd to have a sort of leading man or leading woman play the Doctor. I I think I think that often bad fan casting the Doctor are sort of based on that kind of mm. thing. Uh, so yeah, I th- I think Lala, Lala looks. She goes. She does. She plays the alien very well, which I think helps. Helps kind of sell it. Yes, the, she does. She does have an alienness. Um, I don't know if that's that's as it's most pronounced here. And well, I think it's through the context of the story when they are very much are they are time lords, but they be even if they are humans, they feel alien and they are alien presences in the story. Tom does it a lot as well. Yeah, Tom and Lala definitely have that through a lot of their stories. And after a while, it has a certain archness and a certain knowingness that takes takes a bit of drama away if you do it too much. Yeah. But they do have a thing of being slightly aloof, slightly removed. They're looking at events in a way that nobody else is looking at those events. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Tom here has the same burgundy uh, uniform that he famously wears in the photo shoot for the Five Doctors, which is quite an interesting get-up. And it's not the one I archetypally think of him in. Yeah, so I think maybe if we're talking about Tom and Lauer, maybe now is the time to sort of seek into talking about some of the behind-the-scenes changes that are happening here. Sure, let's talk me through it. So the burgundy outfit debuts here, along with a new title sequence, Radiophonic Workshop taking over the music, some new special effects tech, and boy, do they work it hard in this story to see what it can do. All of the weird tachyonic stuff is then playing with this new thing called the uh, Quantel. Um, JNT who will become a you know a figure who sort of bestrides and overshadows classic doctor who this is his first story as producer this is the only season of classic who which had sort of a true executive producer barry letts came back in to do that because jnt had not produced before so he was sort of losing, he was learning the ropes well he wasn't learning the ropes but there was a feeling that he might need somebody as it happened, Barry Letts probably didn't actually do very m- much from all accounts. And JNT, you know, started putting his mark on things right from the offset. Graham Williams and Douglas Adams have both just left. And uh, a new script editor, Christopher Bidmead, Christopher H. Bidmead, uh, Christopher Hamilton Bidmead, has just come in. Mm, the chap you were talking about earlier. So 
all all these new people who all have very pronounced new visions for the show. And at the same time, Tom is not doing anything new. Tom has become impossible to direct. And they they just, by all accounts, at this point, it was a case of just leaving him to it and you got whatever he gave you. He had fallen out with Lala Ward. They had terrible friction between them. He refused to make eye contact with her whilst they were filming the story. Wow. Incidentally, after they left the show, they got married. Goodness me. So th- what's interesting about this story is it captures lightning in a bottle because it's a handover artifact. So Tom was the Doctor for such a long time that there are individual kind of eras within his era. But unlike modern Doctor Who, which can be very different week to week, Tom, and and actually a lot of classic Doctor Who, wasn't week to week variable in that way. It certainly was when it first started in 1963, and... But that's because they were trying to work out what the show was that they had. And at other times it would go back to it. I think bits of the, like the fifth Doctor, I would say. But at other times, you know, each of Tom's seasons was quite consistent in tone from start to finish and not that variable. And season 18 has this quite coherent tone, loosely themed about entropy and decay. It's quite dark and brooding. It's all moving towards his regeneration. This is brighter and a bit more colourful, but it's got more depth and more intelligence than the romps and the silliness of the Williams Adams era because it's this crossover, a script that was being worked on by the Williams Adams era that then Bidmead edited that was made under J&T with his new vision. And so you get this... The Leisure Hive is not like the season before it or the season it belongs to or really any other part of Tom's era. So it stands alone? Yeah, pretty much. Douglas Adams, incidentally, left when Graham Williams left to go and do the TV adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Which I have seen. Uh, I one of the first VHSs I ever remember owning. And that's very Doctor Who. It is, it is. Oh. It's got the Radiophonic Workshop doing the music... Uh, I'm sure it even shares some props. Peter Davison appears as the meat at the restaurant at the end of the universe. Oh, does he? I see that again. It's interesting. I've actually just remembered that I think this might be the first classic Who I ever saw any of. Oh. In that, I have... I don't think I've seen the episode, the whole thing before, but I I, I actually remember dimly watching half of the first episode of, of a classic Doctor Who serial that someone has on a DVD, and I think it was The Leisure Hive. Uh, I remember the the first couple of scenes. That opening tracking shot across the beach. Yes, which is which is wonderful. Um, really long tracking shot. That was some kind of showing off, and that was very new, new like kind of shot. It's really funny that they bring in K nine just to blow him up. Does he? Is that the last time he then appears? No, no. He he, he gets fixed right, again. I, in I, a bit. I, that is the, the scene where K nine falls into the sea by accident. Is quite funny. That was something that John Nathan Turner added um, to explain why K-9 wasn't in the story. And the director quite liked it because he thought it kicked off the series with a bang because K-9 was quite a beloved character. Incidentally, it's not quite the Madame Tussauds waxwork in The Five Doctors, but Tom was ill when they shot that tracking scene. And you can kind of tell if you look back at it, 
but when he's laid out on the deck chair in the long shots, it is in fact just his costume stuffed with pillows. Amazing. So, that, so it is him when he's close up, but not... Yeah. <laughs> That's quite funny. Tom Baker, the only person who played the Doctor a couple of times without actually doing so. Um, no, it's a, really, it's a really nice way to start a season, and it reminds me of uh, some of the strongest starts to seasons of seasons of Full Doctor Who that I've seen. It's not very accessible to... like. I can't imagine tuning into this and knowing what was going and feeling secure what was going on if I hadn't seen Doctor Who before. But maybe by this period, you know, I mean, the the the, the show is coming to the end of its imperial phase. I mean, at, the, at this period, there wasn't anybody in the UK who didn't know what Doctor Who was. Right, exactly. So uh, I think if Doctor Who started with this kind of thing now, it might not work so well because it's it's in a it's in a less popular period mm. at the moment, but. You could very much see... Okay, I just think this episode has a lot of stuff that Russell T. Davis really seems to have pulled on. I still can't... I, I just can't get over the Fermazi Slovene. Like, if you change that one thing, then it's just an RTD episode. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, which of the RTD Doctors, though? I mean, it could be either. Tennant is very much a Graham Williams, Douglas Adams, Tom Baker era kind of character and Eccleston is very much a season 18 entropy and decay and everything has its time doctor sure I, but my my argument is very clearly Eccleston this is why this is a story about a people who have lost their home world where they are a dying race mm, that's true good thought but then actually Tennant's the one who openly broods about that. Sure, but I, 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 I agree, but almost I think it would be a bit much there. And I also think that the Tom and Lala relationship is very much like season two Tennant and Rose, that grandiose bestriding right. the universe arrogance that they had. Now, that is very true. And just, you know, I think about interactions actually like uh, the Doctor with the Forest of Cheem in mm. the end of the world, which, as I say, this, this episode is a parallel for me. Um, and I think it would fit in quite well. In a post-Time War world, I'd almost be inclined to attribute some portion of the of the war, the, the Famazi-Argolan War, to a side conflict of the Time War, or to have been, you know, partially affected by it, which would be interesting, actually, because it would give the Doctor a... But that that was that was an arc theme of two thousand and five. It kind of gets lost in the bad wolf stuff. But if you remember, like the Nestine, the reason the Nestine have attacked, the reason the Gelfs attack Earth. Yes, exactly. And I think it just fits really interestingly into that context. Essentially, this fits into the end of the world slot. Yeah, so for me, it has to be nine. Um, I and I don't think anyone else quite thematically fits it. Yeah, season eighteen as a whole is very similar to Eccleston's season. You know, like, season 18 has a loose theme of entropy, decay, and approaching death. And, like, what does that remind you of? Oh, I tell you what. Go on. I I keep coming back to Slovene, Famazi, what have you. Yeah. But also, in Boomtown, we have a resolution where the antagonist is regressed to a baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Basically, if you shove the end of the world and Boomtown together, you have the legend. Yeah, you kind of really do. Excuse me, do you mind not farting while I'm saving the world? Would you rather silent but deadly? (laughs) 
So to tie this up in a bit of a narrative bow, the speed of it and the pace of it doesn't make me not enjoy it, but it prevents me from enjoying it as much as I would if it took time to properly show me what it's actually got going on. And I think you kind of made my point for me because until I said it, the Cold War paranoia idea, you you said, oh, it doesn't have any thematics to that masquerade stuff. And actually, I think it absolutely did. And you missed it because it goes so fast. Yes, I, I think and you are essentially right. Um, I will say this is a great episode. Uh, although it's completely unrepresentative of anything else, I think this is probably one of those episodes which is a good jumping on point. I wonder if I'd agree. I don't know if I do agree. I don't think I do. Uh, I I think I think it has the issue with the start feeling like there's, there's some context you're missing. I think the speed that it goes at means that it is inclined towards that this is a lot of gibberish tuning out kind of response. Yeah, I suppose that's true. So what what I would say is like check this episode out. Oh, I think I think I think it's worth your time. I enjoyed it, but 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 maybe it's not the best of what who can be. Uh, and as Flick said, it maybe goes a little faster. It's saying good. So, uh, what's next time, Flick? Next time, The Invasion, which is interesting to me. Well, it's interesting for a lot of reasons, but it's interesting to me because it is a story which I think has slightly changed its position in fandom just in the time that I've been aware of it. Uh, so, just, just to remind me, is this his this is second Doctor? This is Patrick Troughton. This is the debut of Unit. This is eight episodes long and three of them don't exist anymore. Is is it the direct sequel to the... Well, not the direct sequel, but it comes directly after The Mind Robber? It does come directly after The Mind Robber, you're right. So that's going to be quite interesting. So I'm, I'm hoping that The Feast of Stephen will have kind of been a aperitif for you to tackle an episode that's got a few more missing episodes. And we'll slowly work up to doing a story that's entirely lost. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, I think, I think uh, I'm best foot forward uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, I don't know if you have any final thoughts. My final thought for this story is when dealing with the Mafia, you can often find yourself in a dangerous position if you know too much. Yeah, that's definitely true. So when dealing with the Mafia, the leisure know, the better. <laughs> I like uh, I like that you used your best pun on the title. We have been Relative Digressions. I'm Renner. I'm Felicia. And welcome back to our journey through time and space. Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at who digressions the music is sonic 1.0 by sonic s-o-n-n-i-k and this is a production by Renner robson and felicia parker we'll be back in the future <laughs>